What is going on, everybody? Welcome to A Theology of Hustle. I'm your host, Curry Blandford, and today I am talking to Sonny. So Sonny and her husband, Mark, are people that we've known for a long time here in this uh, Wheaton world that we live in. Uh, we have, they're the sort of uh, couple that, like, you know all the same people and end up just like knowing each other through that. And we have just really enjoyed our time uh, with them. Uh, And so I had such an amazing time sitting down with Sunny here and just talking about her job. I had known sort of what Sunny was doing as she was going through uh, her PhD program and sort of, we had talked around some of that, but just to get to sit down and like, really hear about being an administrator like especially the school system like chicago public schools was just awesome and we like go the gambit in this episode you're really gonna enjoy hearing from her this episode is very uh even devotional and i think will encourage you in your work and just like spur you on to to greater work and to to bringing the kingdom more into your job and uh sunny is just so good at articulating uh some of the ways in which god affects her work and yeah this is just a a really fun episode by Somebody I really uh, know uh, personally pretty well and somebody that I think has a lot of amazing stuff to say, a lot of devotional, like pastoral sort of things uh, come out in this episode. So you're going to love it. Uh, Just a quick reminder to make sure you're following me at Theology of Hustle and uh, on Facebook and Instagram and curry at curry blanford on twitter uh you can also sign up for my email updates i try to keep pretty regular on those things but uh you can find that sign up uh in my links under my bio on instagram or at currieblandford.com and i hope you enjoy this episode with sunny all right sunny well thanks so much for you know meeting me at the library and hanging out with me a little bit this morning. great thanks so so much for having me i'm so glad to be here and excited to talk about stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, let's just jump off and just have you sort of introduce yourself a little bit to everybody. Great. My name is Sunny Suchain Jonas. I know Curry through a mutual friend and I just love your podcast. I love the things that you're doing. I just love the way that you and JJ are navigating life together and um, would love to kind of contribute to what you're doing with the people around you with Theology of Hustle. Um, I'm right now an administrator in the Chicago Public Schools. Um, we just experienced a strike, so it's very clear now in my heart that I'm an administrator, not a teacher, but in my heart, I still think that I'm kind of a teacher. Um, I was a classroom and music teacher um, for seven years, um, taught pre-K through eight music, second grade and kinder, and then I transitioned to nonprofit admin and K-12 admin. So most recently, since you've known me in Wheaton, I've worked at World Relief for five years doing refugee youth education, worked mainly with Burmese, Bhutanese. Um, and Pan-African refugees, but also since then, I've also been an administrator, an assistant principal, and a case manager, and MTSS overseer um, in both Chicago Public Schools and LaGrange. So that's been full-time, I think, now for, let's see, five years, and then part-time as well. Wow. So you've done a couple things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. I'm 42. I'm old and I've done a lot of work. So I've been working since I've been 22 and yeah. even before then. So yeah, you, yeah, you, you accumulated a lot of jobs. Lately, right? <laughs> yes. Well, yes. And, and in this time that I've known you too, you also finished a PhD, correct? Thanks for bringing that up. It was a lot of work and <laughs> Mark and I laughed. I said, I'm not proud of like all of my dissertation, um, but I'm proud of the fact that I did it while I was a mother and a wife um, and while working. So um, while I was at World Relief, there is a wonderful professor named Dr. Cohen at Northern Illinois. He met me through my work through World Relief. And then he specifically said, if you work with me at Northern Illinois, we'll have funding so that you can have a free PhD and get a little stipend on the side and you can do research with me. So after four and a half years, I finished a degree in bilingual education, a doctorate in bilingual education. Um, Dr. Cohen was kind of my PI, my primary investigator that kind of looped me into um, the Summer Academy's um, research team. And then I've been studying refugees and bilingual education since then. My um, doctorate was kind of of studying 40 different principals who had ELs, um, English learners in their schools. And then what they did was they specifically tried to build community. So I studied someone named Benedict Anderson, who had this theory called Imagine Communities, um, which even before Facebook, he believed that our imagined communities, kind of our hearts communities were even more important than physical communities like geography and like 
our mountain town with not only the community that we believed in, but the community that was in our hearts. So like our church spaces are kind of communities, even when we're not physically together in the same geography are um, for them, English language learners who future college grads, even though they didn't know anyone who went to college, their imagined community of future college grads who'd be kind of middle class someday, those English language learner communities were really important. So imagined communities was one of my theories after um, studying those four different principles and giving interviews like this. Mm -hmm. um, and then also um, a theory called third space where they say that Homi Baba says that third space is not only kind of a position of authority, of kind of fear and reverence, but also a position of intimacy where a teacher is able to be warm, strict mm -hmm. and kind of both distant and present and kind of in our best parenting, right? We're doing that where we're like, oh, you obey me, but you also adore me. Mm -hmm. How often do we walk that line? Not very well, but that third space is kind of what I studied as well. Like those principles, relationships with the students being both um, authoritative and reverent, but also intimate and where like, you know, their students' names and you know each other's favorite colors and things like that. So um, that's third space. And then the third theory was an ethic of care. Nell Noddings really asserts that not only in policy where we're like driven by laws and I have to sign off all these documents that say that I've complied with these deadlines and things like that, um, submitted these reports to the state, but I've also specifically said my ethic and what's my real driving force is an ethic of care. Mm. So the best principles not only are turning in the paperwork and doing what they called administrivia, but they're also really driving their decisions based on the caring for their students and their teachers and families. And then what's complicated about being a principal as a principal in Connecticut. And what I found was that it was very, very hard to be both and um, good at paperwork and finishing all the documents and deadlines, but also really being present, being really a good listener and really being attentive to kind of the caring relationships that was the reason why I went into education. And so a lot of these principals that were super effective were the ones who were like, yeah, I farm out the administrivia or like I do that two hours a day and the rest of the time I'm in classrooms talking to families, really loving the students and knowing them um, well enough to like know their birthdays and track their birthdays. So um, how do they do that both and uh, a lot of times it takes 60 hours a week, but some of them also were just really experienced, loving, efficient people that knew how to work both sides of their brains to do that. So Nell Noddings also talks a lot about the ethic of care being the driver of what we need to be doing instead of the laws and policies and even just the, um, you know, parenting wise, like the meal, meal delivery and the like logistics of driving the kids to school and to extracurriculars yeah. like the ethic of care needs to be present so that then when we're talking to them about their band-aid after like okay i did the logistics of like acquiring the band-aid buying the band-aid <laughs> delivering it to the child but also like you're like oh i'm present for the fact that my kid was crying about this thing that happened as a scuffle so um yeah. i loved nell noddings oh, and cool. she's really great too so i also finished that and thanks for asking about that because <laughs> that monkey is now off my back and i'm done forever so um I'm really glad to be done with that. Yeah, that's interesting because all the all the theories that you brought up just now, right, mm -hmm. include like holding things in tension, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's that's right. I don't know that we're great at that as a people all of the time, you no. know, in a fast paced society, like holding things together that are seemingly in in um, that are that are not equivocal, right? That that aren't this. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's very difficult for us. So how do you like go about? as an administrator, you know, like teaching or learning some of those skills. Yeah. So I just really love, um, uh, I really think that the reason why I got this last job actually was um, a recent letter from they I asked I was asked for a peer letter and so like I actually shared that one of my teacher teachers that I was mentoring um, while I was at CPS um, he wrote this wonderful letter and it wasn't like the traditional letter of like my boss wrote a letter of rec but it was a teacher who said like this was the best teacher mentor that I've ever had. And I was in Teacher America where I had a teacher mentor. I obviously had a principal. I had all these people who were supposed to be mentoring me, probably too many mentors at certain times. <laughs> but like Sunny was the best because blah, 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 blah. So anyways, one of the things that he wrote was that, oh, she turned in her deadlines like she was supposed to for her teacher mentoring program. And we met weekly like we were supposed to. She wrote up my lesson observation and she had pros and cons, pros, cons, pros, sandwich like she's supposed to. She did all the things right. But she also just 
just really, really liked mm-hmm. me as a person. And she really believed in me. And she talked to me about like how I was doing with my social life and how I was able to even, was it possible to date while being a first year teacher? Mm-hmm. The answer is no, you know, <laughs> but like she listened to me through that stuff too. And that was also the year where I was only assigned like four teachers to mentor, yeah. but one of them literally I spent a personal day because he confessed that he was distracted at work all the time because he had to go to court. And I was like, about what? He's like, I didn't pay my parking tickets. And I was like, how many? He's like, I think like 12. I was like, what? Oh my gosh, of course you have to go to court. Let's go together. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to pay like thousands of dollars for all these backlog parking tickets. I was like, let's go together. And we can do all of the mentoring stuff on the train and we'll like work through all the paperwork then. And he was like, oh my gosh. So that was the year that both that, guy who wrote the letter of rec and also who's now a principal and the other guy who I went to the court with um who was like a gay black male who's struggling with faith issues too so I ended up talking to him about his faith and going with him to court and it was just anyway I just loved both those guys I loved how how hard they worked for the kids I love them as people so that letter of rec which I helped I think helped me get my current job really was about uh small new teacher who was just trying to be TFA but hadn't been you know teacher certified and all these things but also how he just said like she loved me and so I feel like the tension is like yes we I turned in my paperwork on time yeah. yes like mentoring actually was an additional thing on my role that I'm like oh I don't know if I have time for this but in the end you end up loving the person and you believe in them and you care for them and they smell that they smell that it's yeah. not like something that because Sunny did her hours and logged in the correct hours but because she loved me and believed in me um that's what i smelled and that's what i felt and so he wrote that in the letter and um my current principal was just like oh my gosh like this guy really liked you and i was like no it's like mutual like i just really believed in him and now he's an administrator and he really was wonderful and sometimes when him or the other four teachers one of them would always be like sweeping the room when the class was chaotic and I'm like it was a bad day because you were sweeping the room and they were like yes I was sweeping the room because I needed a break and I was like how am I gonna like transition the kids to the next calculus lesson or whatever but um yeah so I just really um I do think that the tension is that we want to be both and people right we want to hold like how can I be a good dad who like delivers the meals and the band-aids but also really is present and knows their kid like when i hear you actually talking about especially your oldest son um what's his name again? Uh, bennett bennett yeah. and you're like he knows that he's the boss like he knows that he's amazing well that's because you put him in safe situations sure. where you poured into him his school is safe his church is safe he's beloved in all those places now someday he'll have to learn that he's not beloved by everyone <laughs> right, yeah but yeah. until then you're yeah. gonna be like everyone adores you yeah. you are the best thing since sliced bread right. and that's the way god feels about us so that's also spiritually mm-hmm. true mm-hmm. but that's not in this world true yeah. so how can we provide those both and situations where our kids see us deliver the things that we have to that are the deliverables but also we're emotionally present and kind and yeah. like loving to them and attentive to them. Uh, and so I don't know a ton about the education system, like firsthand. I, I, yeah. you know, I see people, I know people in the education system. Is it true though, that a lot of times like the education system will t- take people who are naturally that loving kind sort of thing, and then maybe chew them up and spit them out. I mean, is it, of course. Yeah, yeah. So what, what is it about the, the system that like does that? Yeah. Know? So let's talk about the teach for America model. Cause yeah. it's a two year commitment of social justice, loving, smart people um, who decide I'm going to go in the worst schools of America. It's a real social justice issue and I care about it. I'm going to be a doer. You know, I'm going to be a lover and a fighter at the same time. So some of those people end up breaking their two-year contract. Why? Because two years is too long even for like a do-gooder who's really smart to actually be capable enough to make it through two years. They break their contract after year one and you're like, what happened? Well, lots of things happened. Like one, they got confronted with the fact that teaching is flipping hard. You know, like it's just like parents where you're like, who can prepare you for parenting or teaching? Nothing and no one, you know? So like you either have it in you to like really rise to how hard it is or you don't, you know? And so either kids come out functional or kids don't come out functional because like their parents or their teachers or someone couldn't do it, you know? And um, I recently uh, 
Mark was laughing at me, my husband, who um, he was like, how is that movie? I saw like a movie for the first time by myself as a mom because he was like, get out here and get yourself get a meal. House. And like, you need a break so bad. And so I right went, there. yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So he sent me to Glen Art Theater and I bought like the chippy tie next door. And I had like pad thai bag, you know, in a Christian way, broke the law of like bringing in food into the theater. And I watched Man, um, Manchester by the Sea or whatever that's called. And Mark was like, gosh how was it i was like it was amazing it's about how sometimes your best is not good enough but that's good enough and he was like well then <laughs> you know like my dark dark twisted heart interpretation of that movie but it's about a man who tried to parent and be a husband and just failed hmm. and like you and then they they split and you know and he he failed in such a major way in such a sad way and broken way and you know you see his his ex-wife remarries and he never remarries because he probably didn't believe that he's good enough to remarry, right? Um, and then you see them kind of reconciling. It's just a beautiful scene where like you see that she saw that he tried his best and that it wasn't good enough. Huh. You know, not good enough for him for her to even stick around. But um, but she also had compassion and she had mercy and she just knew how hard it was. And so mm. Anyway, I feel that way about teaching. Like there was a really hilarious um, staff meeting that I'd like to say that I led because it started off with me saying no one got into this because they said, I love children and statistics. No one said, I'm going to go and be a teacher where I do data analysis and like I do assessments all year long, you know, and I'm going to do NWEA map testing and have to click on a computer certain buttons that don't work and make the uh, internet implode on the school and then it's not going to even work and then I have to do it again <laughs> seven more times you know so no one gets into that so then we then we did a staff meeting about um, data analysis <laughs> you know <laughs> because we had to analyze the data you yeah, know yeah and target certain groups that were struggling, which always are the kids who are Title I poverty, Title III who are EL, yeah. and Title VII who are special ed. So those federal monies that are now given to schools as extras to support the schools um, are targeting poor kids, brown kids, you know, um, right. special ed kids, you know, with disabilities. So no one really goes into teaching thinking like I'm going to do data analysis, I'm going to work 60 hours a week, I'm going to be punching little circles for the you know, tactile math manipulatives lesson that I have to do. And then again, 70 more times, right, you know, right. until the kids yeah. get it, you know, but yeah. so I think all of us are like that, but I think all of us are like that with um, ministry or work or sure. whatever. Um, and I think that that's okay because all of us um, romantics, idealistic do-gooders, we figure out our way and with God's grace and with God's help and with community help and with good training and just also just getting tougher, yeah. we figure it out. But like, I definitely feel like, oh, people who quit teaching, no judgment, no judgment. I only did it for seven years and it, it wasn't long enough before I switched to admin. And yeah. every day, sometimes I'm like, why didn't I stay in the classroom a little bit longer? You know, but it's because I thought that I could do a better job with something that was slightly easier with a little bit more pay. And also like, I really felt like I saw as a teacher how to support teachers and kids. Um, but I still feel like I sold out. I sold out, you know. Right, and, took the admin. Totally, admin, yeah. totally. And yeah. even sometimes when I farm out, my kids like babysitting or like their meals or whatever. I'm like, I should have just done it. I should have been on the front lines, you know, yeah. but like we farm out things all the time and we yeah. do transitions all the time. And I really don't judge people who switch from teaching um, because, you know, I was proud that I did it for seven years, but I definitely feel like um, they're heroes and they're also like waging war every day. Yeah. Yeah. And like some of them make it out alive and some of them don't and yeah. that's okay. You know? So, um, and I think that people, even like with parenting, I feel like people, you can see when people get like disheartened and they, they give up. There was, um, I volunteer every year at um, Mothers and More, which is now called DuPage Area Moms. And um, they give all their monies from their resale at the fairgrounds, which is this huge oh, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they do, I, I roped in the Sassers. I roped in like a <laughs> bunch of people because I'm like, I could not survive without this resale. I spend like $200 twice a year than their clothes. For the, <laughs> yeah, done, right. instead of like Target, Walmart, yeah. <laughs> resale shops. But anyway, I saw this one mom one time. I was doing QI and I told um, them not to give me QI anymore because I'm like, I'm too soft. You don't want me for QI because what is a, QI? Sorry, QI. quality oh, okay. inspection, gotcha, gotcha. you know. Okay, okay, and okay. so when people are donating their things, you make sure that you know they don't have holes at sure, the right yeah, season. Yeah. 
this woman comes and um, it's not that her, she's anonymous. She wasn't anonymous. I don't remember her name, um, but she comes. She has like all these books. No way should they pass QI. No way because they have like they're brown. They're obviously from their, her garage that right. she did all and that she never cleaned out and that like the raccoons loved and everyone loved like just whatever. And like, I'm sorry, this lady just looked so tired. Yeah. And she had lugged these books that she had carefully like put the tags on and stuff right. like that. I was like, push them through, push them through. It's and she's fine. like, she's like, yeah. she's like, oh, thank you so much. But she just looked disheveled and tired. <laughs> she, <laughs> she just needed she, me yeah. to. Yeah, and then no one's gonna buy those books. Yeah. So I'm just like, oh no, maybe I should buy some of those books and then just like throw them away. But like, um, yeah. So some people, mm. that's what happens. You know, life yeah. just like wears them down. Yeah. Like you know, the parable of the different seeds and stuff like that. Like different people struggle with different things. But for me, I'm like, oh, the one where it talks about and life is life struggles just eat away at the seed. I'm like. Oh no, may that not be me. Right, I want right. to like be those that 90-year-old who's still like cheerful and who still loves people and who isn't like that's the world got me down. <laughs> it's, it's taken its toll. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so So yeah. I mean the, uh, so here's a theological question sort of out of left field mm-hmm. if I could. Where do you think God is in those maybe tasks that like we didn't sign up for or that just the heart like where is God in in oh, some totally. Yeah, well I do want to be the person who like ran the marathon for God and not just a sprint and like was the tortoise that like chugged on and chugged on. But I do feel like, I mean, could we all say that we're against prosperity gospel, right? Yes. yes. So like when we obey God, he makes us rich. When we obey God, life gets easier. No, according to Henry Nouwen and according to like so many important theologians, the more obedience we press into God, sometimes it means like, doing less, doing, yeah. being less successful, struggling and like almost dying <laughs> or martyrs like dying, yeah, actually yeah, dying, right, you yeah. know? And so I love that Henry Nowen, he chose the anti-prosperity gospel where he stepped down from being a Harvard professor to eventually his obedience in one direction was like, eventually he's like, I'm a one-on-one aide to a man who does yeah. not even know my name, who cannot speak and is in a wheelchair and I'm changing his dirty diaper. Right. And it's not a baby's diaper that's clean and like, you know, just mm-hmm. from like breast milk. It's like nasty and gross. Yeah. So I think that that's the, the person that I kind of think of in terms mm-hmm. of like the saints among us who like kind of make those obediences. Um, so I do think that theologically that's what we want to be against prosperity gospel and for kind of what it means to suffer and choose suffering. Not so much that it breaks our heart and that we get broken, but like just before that, yeah. right? yeah. just before that. Right. So no, it's yeah. good. Uh, off the top of your head, favorite now in book. Oh, beloved life of the beloved. I just love it. Yeah. But I do love that on your website, there's a bunch of, different books that now are on my like to, to read those. Oh, okay. And like I said, I feel like we have different circles. Yeah, so I sure. feel like I'm going to read some of those books. And I'm going to be like, oh, I'm so glad that, you know, yeah. Curry recommended those. Yeah. Um, I think in that same spirit of like sometimes when we're obedient and then God rewards us with less yeah. <laughs> or like sometimes there are seasons where we're just suffering. And we're like, where's the year of Jubilee? <laughs> Hasn't it been seven years? Like, where's the year of Jubilee? <laughs> Waiting for the year of Jubilee. What? My year of Jubilee is not for 20 years. Okay. Um, I do mm-hmm. think that some of the paradoxes that I wanted to bring up since this is not a public school and I could bring up scripture and stuff is that I just prayed this morning for someone about having feeble arms and weak knees. Mm. And what does it mean to like lift people when you're broken and also you yourself, your knees are broken, but still in our brokenness, depend on God's strength and God's love to be the one that lifts others and also for ourselves stand. Um, Mm. So that's in Hebrews. Um, I also have been praying a lot about kind of what you talked about with like um, Mary versus Martha. Like how is Mark and I's you know, mm, resume success right. based on being Martha's, not just, yeah. you know, in the world, but even at church, like we're like, we're just such good, dutiful people because right. we're on four committees in the church and we're like overspent at church and overspent at home and overspent at work. You know, like, yeah. no, that's not the way. Like Jesus said, you know, that Martha actually did a good thing. That part of the scripture is blessed in the sermons, right? Yeah. But, you know, she was doing a good thing, but the better thing, the best thing yeah. is sometimes just worshiping and sitting at the feet of, of God and not even like how many logs of, hours have we logged with prayer how many logs of uh, hours have we logged for service but even like how many times have we just like read the bible or just took a nap Mm -hmm. or like just really known that like god is our provision in the way that mary did um and then the last paradox i really love is um 
uh, my friend Matt, who actually is a theologian at Yale. He works with Miroslav Wolf about like hospitality stuff, Muslim Christian stuff. And like, he just is amazing. And he has like four books out, but like, he's like, Sonny, your thing is that Proverbs 31 thing that you always talk about. I'm like, yeah. And if I was a theologian, I'd talk about it. (laughs) So Yad and Kaf, which are the two different Hebrew words for hands in the Proverbs 31, wife of noble character, she has her hands outstretched and she has her hands drawing in. So Mm. like, how is God in our different seasons calling us to really, really go deeper and smaller? And when Um, And drawing in people like, you know, the hen with the chicks under her wings and things like that. And how in different seasons are we supposed to have the hands that are outstretched? So the yad and kaf hands, both those two separate Hebrew words for the same word hands. um, How are we supposed to also in other seasons give more, do more? You know, what's the um, Joel Austin verse? Um, Stretch our boundaries, Mm. the prayer Javas, you know, like um, expand our land, you know, (laughs) like more, 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 bigger, broader. Um, So how are those different seasons where I'm like only going to love Henry and homeschool him and no one even knows what I'm doing for one year? And then how in other times am I like practically neglecting Henry because like all the ministry and the professional things Mm. cause me to go out and about. So Bob Goff, who I love, who does um, the book Love Does, Mm -hmm. the joke is that he's the doer and that his wife, Sweet Maria, is the the beer, right? Right. And so how within one ecosystem, how can we make sure that Mm. the doing and the being and the yacht and the cough hands are both happening so that like, um, the MK or PK who's like suffering because their their dad was a public figure but not able to be home. Um, how can that not happen for us where we're actually attentive to our kids and yeah. to the people that are right in front of us or our small church or our small family or our small um our husband who I've just known him so long. He knows I love him. No, no, <laughs> right. no he needs yeah. some TLC too, yeah, just like primary, me, you know? Like, uh, primary, so, yeah. yeah. So I think yeah. that some of those tensions do exist and, wow. you know, for you to bring that up is why I like your podcast. Right. Like you just ask the right questions and bring in good people. So, yeah, I appreciate that. It's it, yeah. I think that's, Oh, there's so many, uh, yeah. So many thoughts there. I think that's like really helpful. I think as people, we're uncomfortable a lot of times with seasons. And I'll say this about myself, right? Like mm-hmm. even moving into winter, right? Like mm-hmm. winter is telling you it's time to slow down. Like mm-hmm. it's time to like not be all over the place and kind of like, you know, and and everything in my being's like, no, 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 we have to go. Like I'm not okay with like stopping, you know? Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. in our lives, there are seasons, you know? And, mm-hmm. and it's okay to have a season of drawing in, right? And yeah, yeah I think that's... And the seasons balance out yeah. each other and the yeah. people balance out right. each other, like Bob and Maria Galloff yeah. and like within our marriages, like I feel like it's good when we complement each other. It's right. good when like Henry gets one thing from Mark and a different thing from me and then Pearl goes to me for a certain thing, but then it goes to Mark for a different thing. Yeah. You know, I think that yeah. that's okay. If the ecosystems are balanced, that's good too. But I also think that what's important in terms of sanctification process is that like when I go to public, and there is going to be a season where God's like, less, Sonny, yeah, less, right. you know, too much Martha, you know? And then when I'm going to like insular and I'm like, am I bordering on agoraphobia? Is my, is my introverted self yeah. thriving a little too much right, right now? Then he's going to be like, a little bit more Sonny, a little bit more Martha. Yeah. Is, are you just resting or are you just becoming lazy? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so I think yeah. that that's where um, the Aristotelian golden mean, right? Like, yeah. My kid, who's too extroverted, which is one of my, them, um, I'm gonna be like, oh, just, just be happy, just us four. Right. It's okay, and it's okay just for you to be alone and understimulated sometimes, you know. And then my other one, who's a little bit more introverted, I'm gonna have to like Aristotelian golden mean her, where I'm like. And do you know what? When you have to work a crowd, it is loving Jesus. By when you're working the crowd, it is exhausting, but then that's how you're serving Jesus. Right, you know, and yeah, so yeah. I think that that's also the tension where like God will call us into seasons mm. and change us because we're doing something too much the other way. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, you're right. It's hard. It's really hard. It is hard. Yeah. That's good. I think that's a good word for us all. Um yeah, I want to I want to uh, get back a little bit to sort of your vocation and your profession and why you've taken the the route that you have because it seems like the I mean the bilingual education is obviously sort of the the heartbeat behind a lot of this. So what is it that sort of drew you into this like refugee sort of, like why what's the why behind what you do? Yeah, I think that um we all have like heroes and people that we look, you know, that we want to be kind of like when we grow up and 
the sad thing is I think I'm grown up. I think I'm 42, but I'm like, oh my gosh, am I being that yet for other people? Because, for example, Daisha Toll is a gal who um, she graduated from Yale Law School and in Connecticut, she had founded a bunch of schools, you know, a bunch of charter schools. And I was just like, who is this lady? What's her story? Because I um, was needing to do a principal internship from my grad school in New York, and then she had schools in New York and Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And so what's so cool is that she had gotten whatever prestigious award that gets her into England for her law school, um, some sort of fellowship that's famous that I'm blanking on. After she finished that, she was like, I can't be a lawyer. She's all set to be like a prestigious lawyer with a Yale Law School degree with a Fulbright fellowship and, uh, yeah, and yeah. whatever. And she finished her Fulbright and she was like, I can't do this. I got into this because I love justice. The, the biggest disparity of justice in America right now is public schools. I'm just going to start a wow. school. So like with no, just like a TFA, Teach for America gal, she's just like, I could do this. Just a little bit of critical thinking and a little bit of whatever and a lot of, for her, a lot of charisma, yeah, sure. a lot of like, really good problem solving a lot of like networks a lot of really really good hearted love she now has schools in connecticut new york and rhode island some of which she didn't start because she wanted to it's because she's asked to do these schools she now has a child she has multiple children now um with mm -hmm. one of her ex-board members because like she um anyway she just is kind of doing she's just one of my heroines um she's one of my heroines because she specifically allowed her heart to dictate kind of her vocation mm -hmm. and she had the social capital and the professional capital sure. she had lots of things um she had what um uh they have that the resume adam and the funeral adam right <laughs> she's like totally loving but also totally poised to like conquer the world sure. on paper yeah. so um she's one of my heroes but i also think that like i got into what i'm doing partly because uh, my parents modeled for me like that you can live an integrated life even when church and work are separate mm. and i think that even though i wanted to go to wheaton college um as like this zealous christian um, in high school who like prayed for her mom because she didn't let me go to youth group the day before the ACT. I'm like, I'm praying for my mother, my sinful mother who's keeping me from youth group. And she was like, no, it's because you get home at 10 after youth group. <laughs> right, and like, yeah. and, um, I want you to be well slept. And now I'm just like, oh, I'm going to be that mom right, who like right. is such a Nazi to my own kids. But at the time I was like, I'm praying for my mother who kept me from youth group before the ACT. So I think that they modeled for me that like home and work can be kind of both christened into jesus you know mm. and um and that school work all these different places that are kind of like places that can be sanctified um that i wanted to be kind of in a place where like i could witness i think that's also because my personality is not an evangelist like i cannot i can't seal a deal with any of my friends like my friends who became christian were because i farmed out after a certain point sure. of bringing them yeah. to youth group i'm like dave cho seal the deal for james james park okay like <laughs> um can you finish this this um conversation that i had but i couldn't really go there completely with this friend sarah who's been coming to youth group now for two years mm. um so i think that that's also why i love um working in non-church settings and kind of feeling like that's a place where i can have real relationships that aren't forced and aren't like i'm going to witness to you therefore i'm going to have a non-christian friendship right. um i do like that yeah that's cool so what i want to give you some opportunity to sort of just talk about bilingual education is that all right i know mm -hmm. like i know that uh, that's a passion for you so why is why is it so important to you um i got to present um a paper and a presentation on um eschatology and bilingualism right so like what? we are we are <laughs> heavenly citizens and earthly dwellers oh. right so we are code switching between two places with different rules different linguistic norms blah blah, blah. and refugees also are toggling between two different cultures two different mm. linguistic norms so how is it that when jesus tells me not to steal but i really want this thing the world tells me that i should take care of number one which is me sure. i'm gonna steal that thing because like who will even notice i'm gonna steal that thing but the norms of heaven and the norms of earth are like not the same. And so um, how do I toggle between those two things and how are refugees also toggling between those two things? So I feel like that's one thing that I've loved um, as 
um, children of immigrants. My parents immigrated in 75. I was born in 77. I don't remember kindergarten because I asked my mom, why don't I remember kindergarten? She's like, because you didn't know what the heck was going on. (laughs) I was like, I remember something about red construction paper, you know? But like I was learning English by immersion and like I definitely loved school and home both because they were both safe spaces but one place I understood what was happening verbally and the other place I had to just figure it out and Mm. so I do think that that's all those things are ways that we are um, remembering our heavenly our dual citizenry right Mm. we are completely 100% heavenly citizens we are 100% on this earth stuck as earthly dwellers with limitations Mm. and how is that liminality and how is that kind of code switching um, part of who we are. So I love bilingual education because of that. I also love the fact that I have to code switch between like sweet, middle class Christian women in one context and the next minute I'm like dealing with like a child who switched from an ODD oppositional defiance disorder diagnosis to a DMDD dysregulatory mood disorder diagnosis Mm -hmm. and I'm having to talk to the shrink and to the hospitalization about like what what happens? Like, why are his psychotropic meds completely different? Oh, because it's different parts of the brain, but they both look like aggressive, mean kids, you know? Like, yeah. so um, I love code switching between those things mm-hmm. and I love being able to um, do that. And I think that that's what bilingual ed is for me. It's um, a place where I have really enjoyed the kind of conceptual toggling that's really applicable in my spiritual life too. Yeah, that's cool. So what is it? Uh, so bilingual education, why is it so important for these kids? Because it feels like, I mean, a lot of schools, you know, take t- different trajectories. Some of my friends have have kids that are in schools that are, you know, in dual language programs, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas other schools sort of like maybe um, take kids who who's pr- who primarily speak a, a different l- a language other than English mm-hmm. and then sort of like pare that down until they're only speaking English. So what is the like? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't even know what I'm asking. Yeah, so like <laughs> I think that the change is that um, American education is now realizing that we were one of the only culture, cultures and um, nation states that literally by becoming an American, you lose your non-English language, right? So like, you know, any other country, like they're like, oh, we welcome bilingualism and it's such an asset. But I think that um, American public schools, there's all sorts of um, bias against other countries and other languages. So for example, even though right now the countries that we're biased against are the ones that are correlated with poverty. Mm. So again, brown, black kids, um, um, specifically like even Native American kids or like um, non-English language learner, uh, English language learners. Um, I think before one court case in school law that's really important that we studied was Myers versus Nebraska, where after World War II, anti-German sentiment meant that a teacher was not allowed to speak German. And even and even to conflate that issue, she also didn't was not allowed to speak German and also was not able to teach out of the Bible. So there's like the conflation of the church versus state and there's the issue um, of the um, anti-German sentiment after World War II. But like, you know, now my husband's German American and like he's not really like a target (laughs) group, you know, but I think that back then it was. And so like this teacher was not allowed and then it got flipped and like so there's all sorts of cool reasons why we can see that. yeah, we've really risen above that. We're we're better than that. No, and now it's a different kind of racism. Yeah, <laughs> now it's a different totally, kind of thing. Right. So bilingual education, what I love, and even school administration in terms of protecting that, being an administrator for that, is that you do get to advocate for kind of social justice and kind of systematic um, justice issues. And so if we knew that K-12 public schooling in America was just, like truly just, then yeah. there's a huge systemic win right if we know that overall k-12 public schooling is unjust overall that's not a win so let's take even cps there's over 600 schools my last district there was i think less than 20 schools in the whole district and this one is over 650 right so if we knew that cps was a just and good and safe and beautiful system then we're like oh my gosh how many children over thirty-seven thousand teachers over i don't know how many children you can yeah. google that but like over mm-hmm. 650 schools they're like ecosystems of flourishing they're ecosystems of people where they're learning two languages at the same time they're um l1 they're language one and their l2 are both 
flourishing and growing. Um, their C1, their culture one, their C2, their culture two are both yeah. flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're honored as people, as children, but also as like burgeoning adults. So like, I think that that's where um, I love bilingual ed too, in terms of really it being the justice heart of God and like being something where like mm-hmm. the macro stuff that I care about and also the micro stuff. Like, so let's say that I care about justice, but then I'm a jerk to my husband or my children, which does happen, right? Then that's sure. like hypocrisy, right? That's yeah. like large macro versus micro hypocrisy. Yeah. And then, or let's say that I'm loving my family, but then like, I don't really give a rip about what even Trump decides. Like, I I don't care because like, I'm just going to take care of my own. I'm just going to be insular. Then that yacht and cough hand, then that's kind of becoming unbalanced. Right. So I do think that bilingual ed for me has been something where like, I've actually been able to try to practice some systemic um, macro as well as micro kind of goodness and holiness and sanctification um, but also really invest into others as well. So, man, Sonny, that's good stuff. Oh, <laughs> like the, yeah. Even the macro micro, um, the, the hypocrisy there, it's, it's easy to fall into. It really mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, stand for something in one place and, uh, totally. break, tear that down in another place. Mm-hmm. And like being people of consistency where we value the same thing, no matter what is, uh, it's a it's tricky business, honestly, but yeah, uh, a call, a calling, I think. And I think that's tricky too, because I think that when you take a stance in one thing, you do end up having to be for something or against something. Yeah. So in terms of binaries, we think a lot in binaries. Like yeah. there's like there's male and female. That that's a binary. You're either one or the other. There's um you are um Christian or non Christian. Right. You're in or out. You either said the sinner's prayer or you didn't. You know, but right. I think that like what I love about even um there's a book Dave Schmelzer wrote, um, I'm not the religious type or not the religious type. And he says we need to move away from the binaries and start moving towards like this centered set instead of bounded set. Like yeah. instead of you're in and out, like you have to be walking towards Jesus. And that's different and different developmentally, but also it looks different for different people. And so So I think that also what's tricky about the holiness thing is that the vineyard um, did take a stance, the vineyard as a church movement did take a stance kind of pro-women leadership and non-LGBTQ leadership. So then it looks externally like some hypocrisy. There's some internal hypocrisy because um, what? If you're going to love women, the, um, the... previously systemically oppressed, the minority, the underdog, then you also have to love LGBTQ. But I think that the vineyard at least took the stance that according to scripture and the interpretation of scripture, blah, 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 their particular interpretation looks hypocritical. So I also think that what's interesting about hypocrisy is that we also have to know that we are all that not only are we all hypocrites because we all sin and we all make mistakes and I am going to be a jerk again, usually to the people that are closest yeah, to me. That's, that's where it's <laughs> easiest to do. Yeah. Um, and less like a jerk on my public self, <laughs> yeah, right? Like, right, yeah. But also that what's going to also happen is that I am going to actually be in theory hypocritical, right? Yeah. I'm going to take a stance for certain things and against certain things that are like, even within the macro, Sonny, you're a hypocrite too. And I'm like, Yes, I am. And I'm trying my best not to be, but I'm going to be again. And without being complacent about it, we also have to come to peace and come to terms with our own hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah, that's tough. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, that's tough stuff. Um, That's good. Uh, So what is it? What is a day in the life of a uh, public school administrator kind of look like? What does that role even sort of entail? Yeah, I love kind of um, learning about systems because I do realize now that like um, in particular, um, the thing that I'm the most interested about is the assistant principal position because I still think that I prefer being an assistant principal to a principal. So like what I love about the assistant principal position is that it actually is different depending on the ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So some assistant principals are in charge of all student discipline. Um, some assistant principals are in charge of all special ed IEP compliance. Okay. Some assistant principals are in charge of all um, arrival dismissal logistics, all blah, 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 you know. But other assistant principals, depending on their strengths or their principal strengths or depending on the, the um, district's um, uh, navigation of those roles and those job descriptions, they are in char- charge of completely different things, like all the professional development staff meetings for the teachers or they're in charge of... Um, all field trips. I don't know, you know, how, how all the examples of the different ways, but I do have experienced some of those different ways. So, um, what's a day in the life of, for example, 
um, even year by year, just changes. Um, but this year, I'm overseeing 119 IEPs and 504s, which Are means that serious? every Wednesday for a pre-K through eight school, every Wednesday, um, I feel like it's a miracle every Wednesday. Like, I know that I felt that way about parenthood. Like, every day, like, it's the miracle of life and then the miracle of continued life, right? Yeah. Like I'm like every yeah. day is a miracle because my children are still alive and I'm not gonna take that for granted. <laughs> it just takes so many logistics to fall in place for that to happen every day. I feel that way about the 119 IEPs and 504s because I'm like, oh, I actually don't know which ones need translators and which ones don't. So I had to pull it up off of this software that shows last year's IEP meeting. Oh, they had a translator last year. Okay, I'm gonna get one this year. Okay, this year that person who was a translator last year is not at the school anymore. So who am I gonna ask? Okay, blah blah. And so like, let's say that an IEP meeting has like seven people. Sorry, before before we jump into that, can you just put into context sort of what an IEP maybe 504 meeting? Oh, okay, is for, sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. I just want to make sure people understand the gravity of what you just said. Thank you know, so yeah. an IEP is an individualized education plan. So for anyone who either has a developmental disability, a medical disability, or an academic learning disability, they are going to, or even somebody who has like speech language pathology during the school day, or has social work minutes during the school day, which again are develop, you know linked to the developmental and linguist, uh, language and um, learning disabilities or whatever, um, they will have an individualized education plan. It tracks with them every year. Every three years, they have to get reevaluated. And that means every three years, they are either going to get a paraprofessional, are going to get transportation, are going to get um, um, social work minutes, are going to get you know, whatever it might yeah. be. So that plan tracks with them K-12. And now, actually, there are some states... Um, that are kind of extending that K-12 to what Northern Illinois taught me as P-20, preschool through 20, all the way from preschool to grad school, yeah, doctorate wow. level. Wow. So like um, Mark at Wheaton College now has to honor some of the IEPs, whereas like 10 years ago, he does, did not. Um, but I think now that's a gray area that colleges are honoring. Hmm. So the K-12 plans are now even tracking longer than that. So the wow. individualized education plans are those special education students and student plans that track with them K-12, but also um, the 504 medical plans are kind of um, less restrictive than an IEP, but still you have an annual meeting discussing like how that allergy and the EpiPen usage is affecting that peanut allergy is affecting their school day, making yeah. sure that the recess coordinator isn't giving them peanuts, but also that the lunch coordinator isn't giving them peanuts and yeah. all those things. So, um, or an ADHD diagnosis might be 504 or it might be an IEP depending on the kid and the severity of the implications, but 119 of those. Um, and usually on Wednesdays, because of those seven people that are usually at the table for an IEP meeting, um, some of those are part-timers or they're split between four schools at yeah. CPS. Um, and so yeah. those people are only in our school for Wednesday. So how can I squish in between um, 8.30 to 2.30 um, and honor the teacher contract, which gives them a 45-minute lunch, and honor the fact that like nobody really wants to show up at 8.30 <laughs> for the meeting, their first of nine, <laughs> right. you know, whatever yeah. like that. So um, how do I schedule those with software, but also with the notice of conference being a letter home and then a parent phone call and then also an email reminder to all the teachers who have to be present and then try to schedule that so that it's the teacher's prep time and not their random instructional time so that we have to get them a, a substitute. All those things are the things that are giving me an ulcer on Tuesdays. <laughs> but, goodness, yeah. but I plan for those like, you know, for the three-year evals, you know, you have to plan for like a 60-day um, window for the evaluation to happen again, but also for the annual evals for those to happen, like so that you know when to co come and so that the teacher doesn't find out just on the Tuesday. Um, but I do feel like I am nervous about the fact that um, even the staff meeting where I was introducing the slightly revised process this year, I just said, you know, I don't mind working extra to make sure that these meetings run well. What I mind is when my mistakes have implications for you guys, when um, when my mistakes have consequences where now you are screwed over because I screwed up, you know? <laughs> right, right. And so yeah. with every meeting having so many people and so many layers of communication with email, phone, and in-person communications um, and letters, uh, I just feel like there are so many mistakes that can happen. So I just require a lot of grace and mm. it's humbling and it's hard. But for the most part, so far, we've had over 20 this year already, and we'll have so many more after that. But I do feel like um, 
that's a huge part of my job right now and it's not my favorite part but it is I think logistically probably the most important part and it's a way where like all these teachers are now meeting and they've created a written document sometimes like 40 pages long and they've kind of outlined the ways that we're trying to love their kid during the school day mm. and then we're talking to the parent about it and we're asking them hey does this make sense do you see that at home too yes or no why why is it why is there a disparity why is it um, not the same okay that makes sense and then really trying to honor the parents place at the table for that too um, in an ideal situation the homeroom teacher the special ed teacher all the related service providers are all sharing their piece and then holistically we are the village that is loving yeah, right. the, the kid and allowing them to be successful even if they have mrdd um uh what you call it now it's called severe learning and developmental disability sure. then or even if they have odd where they're oppositionally defiant and they've had five foster homes which did happen yeah. to one of my kiddos that guy who switched to the dmdd diagnosis but also had amazing test scores and is obviously if we don't rein it in he's going to use all that intelligence for being a gang yeah. leader right. or we can use all that intelligence for yeah. like being a professor someday you know so like i just think that um yeah in the in the ideal world like all the stars are in alignment every wednesday bam 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 we're having all those meetings and everyone's feeling loved and everyone feels like they've contributed to that that IEP document but in a, on a bad Wednesday teachers don't show up because they didn't get my email because I only sent it on the Monday instead of the Friday before yeah. um, the parent doesn't show up because their other kid is sick and their kid that other kid is actually probably has the same diagnosis as this one but hasn't been able to go to the doctor yet because she has seven children I mean so many different yeah. stories that I yeah. think can come to the table well or not but I also think that what's really great is that, especially when I was a principal and I was a little bit more the, not just the middle manager, but really um, able to lead certain things. There were certain things that I did, like um, I didn't have an assistant principal, so my secretary, when we left, um, she's like, you treated me like an assistant principal. I was like, yes, I did, because I had to. I had to. That was necessity. <laughs> but anyway, so one of the things that I did that was so stupid that she helped me is that I was like, I'm going to deliver once a week all the kids' birthdays that week. I'm going to hand deliver them and say happy birthday. Um, come, to, come to lunch in my office once a month and clump them all like in a month, but then deliver them once a week, blah, blah, blah. And so then I'm like scrapbooking and like making these handmade cards for like all the children. And I was like, why did I do this? And Paula saw me doing this and she was like, let me help you with that. I was like, no. That's above both of our pay, below both of our pay grades. Let me finish these. And she's like, no, no. So, so we finished making all these stupid handmade cards, which I never did again, of course, you know. Sure. But like, you I live still and learn, right? Yeah, <laughs> but like stuff like that. I do feel yeah. like that's also part of principal's days, right? Yeah, like true. we are also doing things that make us feel human again, and that makes us feel like, oh, this is why I got into the job because I got to deliver that card to that kid and. Um, give them a book for their birthday or, you know, whatever else. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, to come to sort of bring this interview full circle, what you do with an IEP or 504 meeting is the ultimate probably expression of this administrative care and this like love, because in all those people, those seven, eight people that are in that IEP meeting, the only one that really matters is that kid right like yeah. the whole thing is about making that kid yeah, flourish that's right you know and i feel like it would be easy to lose sight of that child All in the that time. meeting you All know and that's our kids get lost in that yeah. system you know yeah uh, in this foster and adoptive world that jj and i find yes. ourselves in i mean mm -hmm. everybody who does any sort of foster care and a lot of people who do any sort of adoption end up in an IEP meeting and you, yep. you have to be your child's advocate and, and all of those things. But it, it like, there's so many moving parts that the person who loses out is that little one. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's a great example because to actually adopt, you actually have to go through so much paperwork, yeah, right? right? Before yeah. you can adopt or foster care yeah. a kid, there's like, you know, like the administrivia that, that came up in those principal interviews. Right. So yeah. like, I just think that like, that's exactly right. Like, how do we not lose sight of why we're there? And how, like, as the village is convening at the table, how can we say, like, oh, the village is here for that kid. We're not here just to, like, check off the boxes right. and finish this meeting and make sure we're in compliance, you know? Yeah. How can we go above compliance? Yeah. There's a life. There's a life at stake totally. here. Yeah. yeah. That's good. I love that. Are you okay then jumping into our final two questions then? Yeah. Okay. So uh, my first question is, what is the strangest job that you have ever had? Probably, um, okay, so at, at college, I had two jobs. One was being a TA, 
and I was mugged at gunpoint in urban ed. It was just like such a way to like enter into this career of like, why are you still in urban ed? That beginning was so rocky, you know? But um, but the other job I did was data analysis for the Alfred P. Sloan Center, University of Chicago, um, NORC National Opinion Research Center. Okay. And so in the basement, me and two other RAs, um, research assistants, would like phone call people and just ask them the script of like the questions and stuff like that. We were contributing to like a database of over a million interviews and longitudinal data too, right? Where like it's people who like 10 years ago gave us data and then are tracking again and tracking again. So what was the weirdest job about that was that um, I worked like three rungs rungs under like one of the, the main researchers at that research group. Yeah. And it was just a strange job because like first of all it's during the summertime and I'm like wearing um a tank top to work as I'm walking from my apartment to the job and then like it's freezing cold in the basement so I'm like wearing a sweatshirt in August in Chicago in the basement where I'm like where's the cracked light bulb where's the like you know minimum wage posting poster on the wall that says like minimum wage but we're paid on their table we were not paid on the table but like where are all those kind of cool details right they weren't there but I did know that five rungs under, there was this man that would kind of float around, you know, and then I just knew that he was one of the big wigs and that he was like, you know, my boss's 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 boss. Anyway, so now, you know, five years, you know, like whatever, maybe five to 10 years later after that, I realized I was contributing to his work on flow, Mihai Chicks Mihai. And I read this book on flow and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's why we were asking questions about this and questions about this. And recently I was talking to this um, artist friend of a friend named Josie and she was like, oh, the book that changed my life was Flow. I was like, I was five years, (laughs) rungs under that guy. Five rungs under, I was his boss's 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 boss. And then she was like, what? I was like, and it was not Gloria. Glorified, you know, glorified, like wonderful stuff. It was just me like making phone calls, me like with the other two people being like, next next you know like but it was just it was just the weirdest job because you just show up you had like this pile of stuff and then you do phone calls and then you do like some editing for a book and then you do like random things but it was obviously just like whatever nobody else needed to get done or they need to farm it out yeah then that we did so i just it was the strangest job and it was really really i loved it i think it's a cool microcosm though of the podcast in that that amazing work that was done that changed people's lives <laughs> could not have been done without the people doing the right. research in the, the basement. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with our sweatshirts, we all play our roles, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Different totally. seasons, but we all play our roles. Yeah. Yeah. Henry Nowen chose that job after being a Harvard <laughs> yeah. professor, right? right. He, does, he intentionally worked downward mobility, That's right? True. That's true. It's good stuff. Okay, so my final question then is: What is one piece of advice you would give to somebody looking to bring God's kingdom more into their work? Oh. I think that as I get older, maybe, um, I mean, that's the, the question to ask, right? Yeah. Like, how can we cling on to it and believe it and see it? Um, and how can we really believe our dual identities as, like, eschatologically that we're both heavenly citizens and earthly dwellers? So I think that that's maybe the answer is the question. Like, how do we do it? Like, by believing that it yeah. is happening, mm-hmm. that it's actually true and that we can bring light into darkness and that we can be salt and light in um, the workplaces and that administrivia and the pile of adoption paperwork actually brings us to a life instead of just brings us to a cramped hand you know and Mm so I think that that's the question is the answer but I also think that um, I'm such a big believer in community like you can't just do it by yourself so like um, I, I never did that job in the basement by myself. Like right. it was always with one or two other people and you'd laugh about the stupidness and the strangeness of it. And you're like, this is ridiculous, you know? And I think that that really, um, is true. My friend who is not a teacher anymore for the same reasons that you had alluded to, um, she said, how come when I'm doing something with a bunch of crazy kids and I'm by myself, I just want to cry. But then when somebody else is in the room, I can look at them and we can laugh. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's the power of community, yeah, right? Totally like, is. instead of crying that, like, the 30 kindergartners, half of them have peed in their pants and half of them don't know how to tie their shoe and they don't know how to read, of course, you know? Yeah. Like, then when you're with somebody else and you could laugh about it instead of just crying about it. Sure. So I do think that um, mm-hmm. part of the way that we bring light is that we are strength for each other yeah. and we're co-laborers in Christ instead of in isolation. Good. 
Ah, that's good stuff. I love that. Sunny, thank you so much. This thank is super you. fun. Thanks for doing this work. And I know it's a labor of love, but it's labor too. So thanks so much for doing it. Thanks. I well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, just hearing from Sunny and having this conversation, I think, was so heartening to me. It's just, I feel like she really just uh, spoke to a lot of things that I needed to hear and uh, hopefully that you needed to hear. And so, you know, if there's some of that stuff that jumps out to you in this episode, hit me up. Uh, let me know. I'd love to to hear all about it. Love to hear what you're getting out of Theology of Hustle. Uh, if you don't mind, this would be a great time to scroll down to the bottom of your iTunes or uh, Google Play app or whatever you're using and leave me a rating and review. It helps out a ton and uh, lets me know that you're listening and that's always appreciated. So do all that for me. And until next time, get out there and hustle.